I encourage people not to think about the entire planet's problems because they're huge and you get depressed. Just worry about the piece of the world that you can influence. And if you own property, it's obvious. That is where you would focus. And even if you don't own property, you can help somebody who does. But that private landowner then becomes the future of conservation. That's entomologist, conservationist, and well-known author and speaker on native plants, Doug Tallamy, talking about a remarkable project that you can easily become part of. It's called the Homegrown National Park, and it's made up of land all over the United States. For example, it could include your yard and your neighbors and the yard and forested area of someone else two streets away. Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. The homegrown national park is part of an important effort to stop what is the relentless loss of biodiversity in our world. The continuing and rapidly increasing extinction of species, whether of plants, insects, birds, or other animals. I asked Doug Tallamy why the homegrown national park is needed. It's designed to capture the energy of the average landowner. We've got serious biodiversity issues. The UN says we're going to lose a million species in the next 20 years, and we've lost 3 billion birds in the last 50 years just in this country. We've got global insect decline. These biodiversity declines are unacceptable, not just because we like nature, but because we need nature. It supports us. We've got to turn these terrible statistics around. And when I say we, I mean everybody, everybody who owns a piece of the earth. I love that word own, but if you own it, you've got the responsibility of taking care of it. And that includes the biodiversity on your property. So Homegrown National Park is designed to get that message to landowners everywhere that they are the future of conservation. We've got parks and we've got preserves, but they're not good enough. That's why we're in the sixth great extinction. So we now need to practice conservation outside of parks and preserves, and that's on private property. 78% of the country is privately owned. 85% of the country east of the Mississippi is privately owned. 97% of Texas is privately owned. So if we don't have conservation on private property, we're going to fail. The Homegrown National Park is designed to get that message out and to to use social media to reach the non-choir. It's a grassroots effort to solving this biodiversity crisis. If everybody landscaped in a way where we coexisted with nature instead of expelled it from our okay. landscapes, we could go a long way towards turning this around. So that's the idea behind Homegrown National Park. And so this project comes out of years of your work on ecosystems and the natural world. Indeed, you are an inspirational figure as an author and speaker to many people who work to combat climate change and promote biodiversity. What drove you to follow the path you've taken? Well, I am an entomologist by training. The real turnaround in my career was when my wife and I moved into a piece of property in Oxford, Pennsylvania. It was part of a farm that had been carved up into 10-acre lots, had been mowed for hay before we bought it, three years before we actually moved in. And so it was totally invaded with the invasive species that are common around here, multiflora rose and oriental bittersweet and Japanese honeysuckle and autumn olive and so on. Moving in uh, gave me my first real exposure to the invasive plant problem that we have. 
And as an entomologist, I walk around, I always look for insects. And you do that by looking for places they have fed on leaves and then looking around that leaf. And the first thing I noticed is that there wasn't any feeding on these non-native plants or very, very little compared to typical native plants. That didn't surprise me because in graduate school, we learned, and this was back in the 70s, we learned about coevolution. We learned about host plant specialization. Most of the insects that eat plants can only eat the plants on which they have developed specialized adaptations for getting around the plant defenses. So looking at these plants from Asia, there's no way that our North American insects could have specialized adaptations against a plant they never saw before in evolutionary time. So I didn't think this was news when we actually looked in the literature. There was a big long list of, of reasons why invasive plants are not a great idea, but wrecking the food web was not on that list. So that was a research opportunity. And that sent me down the road of uh, learning how these non-native plants, whether they're invasive or not, are disrupting local food webs. It all turned out that it's one of the major causes of biodiversity decline because we're taking away that first trophic level, the plants that capture energy from the sun, turn it into food, but then those non-native plants don't pass that food on. And that's the big problem here. If they did, if they provided ecosystem function at the same rate that our native plants do, our ecosystems would look different, but they would function just as well, but they don't. And insects are the primary means by which energy is moved from plants to other animals. Most vertebrates don't eat plants directly. They eat insects, particularly caterpillars. So if you have plants that make a lot of caterpillars, you have a, a very robust food web. If you have plants that don't make caterpillars, you have, it's the road to ecosystem failure. That is what got me started. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm here today with Doug Tallamy. He is founder of the Homegrown National Park. He's an author and speaker and a professor at the University of Delaware. And we're talking about the Homegrown National Park, which is basically aimed to address climate change and biodiversity. I find when I talk to people about climate change issues, they often say they feel overwhelmed and powerless, or they deny that the problem exists. What reactions do you see and how do you deal with that? Yeah, feeling overwhelmed is, is a very common one. The earth has huge problems and it's very easy to sit back and say, what can one person do? One person can actually do an awful lot. Let's say you own half an acre. You get to decide which plants are on that half acre and how many of them are on that half acre. Right now, our typical landscape is lawn with just a few plants. So you could one person can, can shrink the lawn. One person can improve insect survival by turning out their lights at night or by putting in yellow bulbs. One person can fire their mosquito fogger, which is killing all the insects in the property and not controlling mosquitoes, by the way. Uh, one person can use keystone plants. Those are the native plants that are doing most of the work. Uh, one person can put in a, a pollinator garden. There's all kinds of things. One person can remove the invasive plants that are already on their property. Most properties do have invasive plants on them. These are things that a single person can do and in no time at all turn around the ecological productivity of their little piece of the world. Not only will those uh, actions help biodiversity, particularly reducing the area we have in lawn would be a big step towards helping climate change. Lawn is the worst choice in terms of sequestering carbon it, it wrecks our watersheds, doesn't support the pollinators, doesn't support a food web. So if you get in the deep-rooted prairie plants that are great at sequestering carbon, it'll help climate change. It's that simple. 
in developing the homegrown national park, you've looked at how we use land currently in the United States. In what ways does land development affect natural areas and biodiversity? Well, we have this notion that humans and nature cannot coexist. So when we, quote, develop land, we expel nature and we create this uh, savanna-like landscape, which is mostly lawn with a few trees. And most of those trees and plants are non-native. So it's not designed to support the food web that supports the birds and everything else around us. The problem with that, of course, is that those are the animals that run the ecosystems that we all depend on. And if we expelled nature from human-dominated landscapes in just a few places, it'd be okay. But we're doing it everywhere. We certainly do it on, on our farmland, which is... Some form of agriculture, we've got about 47% of the U.S. in some form of agriculture. That's a big chunk right there. And when we do it in our residential landscapes, we've got 135 million acres of residential landscapes. That all adds up to um, just a few places that actually have viable ecosystems anymore. So development, the way we develop today, certainly is, is a big part of the problem. It doesn't have to be, though. We can develop in ways that actually do support the natural world. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here today with Doug Tallamy. He is founder of the Homegrown National Park, an author, speaker, and a professor at the University of Delaware. And you mentioned earlier the statistics on the losses in the natural world. I wonder if you could give us some of those again. Yeah, there have been several that have come to our attention in recent years. The first one was the global insect decline. We have about 45% fewer insects today than we had in the the 70s, which is a big problem because, as E.O. Wilson says, insects are the little things that run the world. You know, if we lost our pollinators, we'd lose 90% of the the flowering plants that are out there, which would cause a food web collapse. The energy that drives the food webs is support all of our animals, our amphibians, our reptiles, our birds, our mammals. They would collapse and all those animals would disappear. If we lose our insects, we lose decomposers that rapidly turn over nutrients, and all we'd have is bacteria and fungi. So losing insects is not an option. They are truly the little things that run the world. And when we have serious declines, we're going to have to act on that. Following that statistic came the one from a group in the Smithsonian Institute that says we have lost 3 billion breeding birds in the U.S. in the last 50 years. That's a third of our bird population already gone. And then shortly after that, the UN came out with a big study saying that there are about a million species on planet Earth that are going to go extinct in the next 20 years. And that was two years ago. So now we're talking about the next 18 years. These are scary statistics. They're also something we cannot allow to happen. We depend on these species. So we're used to just hearing these statistics, watching things go extinct as if it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter, and that's part of our rationale for Homegrown National Park. We need a grassroots call to action to make sure that these species stick around for our own good. And then a significant amount of land and water in the U.S. is used for monoculture crops to feed livestock and is heavily sprayed with pesticides and fungicides. How can those areas be made more biodiverse? Yes, we're not going to get rid of agriculture. And cattle, of course, consume an awful lot of our water and an awful lot of our land. So reducing the amount of meat we eat or converting it to these new products, Impossible Burgers and what's the other one, Beyond Burgers, those things would help. But to feed those animals, we have a lot of corn and we have a lot of soybeans. And I mean a lot. We have millions of acres. And, you know, 
we've had corn and soybeans for a long time, but in the last oh, 15 years or so, we came up with genotypes that could tolerate Roundup. So you could spray Roundup on the crop and it didn't kill the crop, but it did kill all the weeds. And with that technology, growers started to spray all the way to the roadside to get rid of all of the quote weeds which were, you know, it was milkweed and asters and goldenrod and all the things that supported a lot of biodiversity on roadsides throughout our agricultural areas. That has been the major cause of the decline of the monarch, which by the way, was listed as an endangered species by the IUCN two weeks ago. So what could we do? The easiest thing to do is put those native plants back. What did they do when they sprayed it? They, they replaced it with lawn. So there's more lawn that we have to mow, putting more greenhouse gases into the air so that we have a neat looking landscape that supports no biodiversity. We can turn that around. We can put those plants back. We can bring the monarch back. We can manage the watershed better without changing a thing in the acreage of agriculture at all. But there are things we can do. We can also put back hedgerows of native plants. We can include pollinator strips right in the the fields themselves. You get government support for doing that. Those pollinator strips are really powerful things. They intercept uh, topsoil before it washes off and, and all the extra nutrients that typically wash off farmland. They provide habitat for the pollinators that are disappearing everywhere. So there are many things that we can do in our croplands without changing yield at all. And that's good news. But how do we get to the Department of Agriculture to promote these kinds of efforts. That seems to be the problem. <laughs> yeah, they actually are. As I said, there's, I think it's CRP, uh, financial benefits for putting in those pollinator strips. It's become a cultural norm for, for growers, high status growers, to have grass on the side of their roadways. It is totally unnecessary. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of inputs with a lot of costs in return. So I guess we could say, well, we're, gonna, we're going to legislate that you have to put back native plants there. I hate to go that route because, you know, people don't like top-down regulation. This is a motivation of homegrown national park is to get individual homeowners and and growers to do it themselves. Bottom-up approach to solving these problems. It's not hard. It's just a matter of having cultural permission to do that, which is why I run around the country talking all the time. There's a lot of other land, rangelands, that are regularly sprayed with pesticides and fungicides to kill the insects who would eat the plants so that we could save the plants for the livestock. And this is spraying that's done by the government, by the USDA. So 770 million acres of rangeland in this country, which is four and a half times the size of Texas. Yes, we can do a lot right. better job on, on rangeland. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. Today, we're bringing you the story of Doug Tallamy. He's an entomologist and conservationist who has authored several books and who advocates passionately on providing habitat for native species of plants, insects, birds, and other creatures. In a world where plants and populations of living creatures are shrinking, or even worse, going extinct, we need people like Tallamy. Our mission at Mothering Earth is to bring you stories of people like him who are taking action in order to create a more sustainable world. But we need your help to spread the word. So please tell people you know about Mothering Earth. Let's return to our interview. You mentioned this earlier, but we do have many national parks in the U.S., but you don't think they're enough in terms of 
places to protect and conserve nature. If they were enough, we wouldn't be in the sixth great extinction. We wouldn't have these biodiversity losses. We could do whatever we wanted outside the parks and we still would have all the species that, that we need. The issue is we need functional ecosystems everywhere, not just in parks and preserves. Only 13% of the country is, is protected in parks and preserves. So 87% is not. And to have non-functional ecosystems in 87% of the country is, is certainly not the road to success. So that's why I'm sure we have to get bigger. I mean, if we can expand the park system, that's great. But we're not going to expel people from their properties. We're not going to end agriculture. So the real goal should be practicing conservation on those types of private property. We can do it. Corporate landscapes. Well, I don't know what the acreage of corporate landscapes, right. but it's huge. And they're giant, typically mm -hmm. giant grass, grass lawns. Doesn't have to be that way. And since 78% of the land in the U.S. is in private hands, you have obviously targeted private landowners to become part of the homegrown national park. What's your message to them? message is that they have a responsibility to protect the ecosystems that are on their property. I encourage people not to think about the entire planet's problems because they're huge and you'll get depressed. Just worry about the piece of the world that you can influence. And if you own property, it's obvious. That is where you would focus. And even if you don't own property, you can help somebody who does. But that private landowner then becomes the future of conservation. If only one landowner does it, it's not going to work. So the message is we need a grassroots call to action. We need to change the culture from an adversarial relationship with nature to a collaborative one so that actions that encourage other species to share our landscapes become the norm instead of the exception. This drive to kill every insect that we see, either in agriculture or yards, that's a deadly cultural norm. We've got to turn that around, recognizing that insects are the little things that run the world. And that's a paper that E.O. Wilson wrote way back in 1987. This is not news, but it has not penetrated the culture. If somebody wanted to make their property part of the Homegrown National Park to get on your map, what are the first steps they need to take? Well, they would go to our website. And first of all, joining Homegrown National Park is free. Uh, so you're not in conflict with Audubon or National Wildlife Federation or, or Sierra Club, any other conservation organization that you might belong to. This is going to enhance that relationship rather than compete with it. So you register your property's location and then the area on your property that you're going to be a good steward of. We started out talking about cutting the area of lawn in the U.S. in half. So we got about 44 million acres of lawn in the U.S. That's the size of New England. If everybody cut their area of lawn in half, that would give us more than 20 million acres that we could put towards conservation on private properties. That's why I started calling it homegrown national park. We're going to do it at home. So that would be one thing that you could do is start to reduce the area that's in lawn. It's a goal. You're going to work at it over the next several years. You don't have to do it all at once. That makes it doable. It makes it cheap, easy. You know, people say, well, what did, how much money did you spend fixing up your yard? We've got 10 acres and it was all mowed for hay when we moved in. You know, I planted a lot of oak trees, but I planted them as acorns. They were free. <laughs> so I think in the right. 20 years we've right. been here, I've spent about $200 on plants. And that was in one day when I went to a nursery that went out of business. So it does not have to be expensive, particularly if you start small. And by the way, those acorns I planted, those are now 60, 70 feet tall. 
they grow. In fact, what are some of the options? When we say to reduce your lawn area, what can people put in place of the lawn? It depends on where you live, but if you're in the eastern half of the country where some form of forest is the typical biome, you want to go in that direction. You want to increase the number of trees on your property. So you put a tree in the middle of your lawn. What do you do underneath that tree? Now, first of all, you're going to do it small, so there is nothing underneath the tree, but put a bed around that tree. That will right away decrease the area that's in lawn. Plant a ground cover. So you're removing the grass and going to have native ground covers that are appropriate for where you live. That tree is going to grow. That bed you put under there can expand as the tree grows, but it should be at least as big as the drip line. So picture a a large oak in your yard with the bed underneath it. You've taken a lot of area out of lawn right there. And you've also created a very favorable habitat to encourage the caterpillars that are depending on that tree to be able to complete their development. We want to favor caterpillars because they're transferring more energy to other animals than any other type of, of insect. And just think of birds. A single bird requires thousands, many thousands of caterpillars to rear one clutch of their young. So if you plant something like a ginkgo or a crepe myrtle, they don't make any caterpillars. But if you plant an oak in the entire country, they support 952 species of caterpillars, more than any other tree. Wow. So that's how you make a lot of caterpillars in your yard. And that's how you shrink your lawn. Now, if you don't have trees, you can put in pollinator gardens. They're going to want full sun. Uh, And you can do that in the front or the back. You can make it as big or as small as you want. A single potted aster in the fall will help monarchs get down to Mexico because they're going to stop and nectar at that aster on the way. They've got to fly all the way to Mexico without stopping to eat. So this is where the homeowner who can have goldenrod and fall asters are the two most powerful nectar providers for migrating monarchs can be a huge help. And then, well, when we're talking about what we're planting in place of the lawn, these are native species, obviously. Yes, yes they are. And, and the reason non-natives don't work is because they did not co-evolve with the insects that would need to eat those plants. So they capture energy from the sun and turn it into food, and that food stays in the plant. So it's not that something right. like a crepe myrtle or a ginkgo is an evil plant. They just don't, our insects are unable to eat those plants. So they're unable to generate the food for the animals that that require insects, and that's a lot of animals. So yes, you want to favor native plants. It doesn't have to be 100%, uh, but the more you favor them, the more productive your landscape's going to be. And you do have a a number that you're hoping for when people add their land to the homegrown national park, which is 70% native, is that correct? Well, there's only been one study that was done by my PhD student, Desiree Narango, uh, looking at what percentage of native versus non-natives is required to sustain the food web that sustains chickadees. So there's one study with one bird. Everybody's extrapolating that to everything. It's the best we have at this point. But she found that you can have up to 30% of your woody plant biomass non-native without destroying the food web that supports chickadees. Once you have more than 30% of your woody plant biomass, then the population becomes unsustainable. More adults die than babies that are born each year. But I guess the idea is that we can compromise. You can have your ginkgo, you can have your crepe myrtles, as long as they're not dominating your landscape. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here today with Doug Tallamy. He's an author, a speaker, and a professor at the University of Delaware. So you have this map online that people can go look at, which shows the range of the park. 
uh, as it e- e- exists currently. In your ideal world, <laughs> what is the goal in terms of acreage? Well, we're young. Well, the MAP hasn't even been active for two years. We've existed as a nonprofit for, for two years now. We have had 20,000 people sign up. What is the goal? The goal would be to have everybody sign up, to have 320 million right. sign up. But our initial target was to go for that 20 million acres, cut that lawn area in half. But there are a lot of people that have are actually protecting small woodlots on their property. You know, they've got their typical suburban yard in the front, but in the back, they might have two or three acres of, of forest. That's got to be included mm. in the National Park because they they don't have to restore it. They're just protecting it. That's really important. I got a statistic from Indiana the other day, and I think it is 83% of the forests in Indiana are privately owned, and it's something like 3.5 million acres. It's a lot of land. It all should be on homegrown yeah. national park. But it like is, you say, the, the more the better, right? The more the better, right. It's right. as much a, a land area goal as it is a cultural transformation. It's to get this message that everybody's responsible for conservation to go viral. People say right. to me all the time, you're only talking to the choir. And I say, yeah, it's only the choir who invites me. We've got to get the non-choir who doesn't have a clue that they are an important part of the of the future of the planet. we got to get that message to them. And so the map is it's kind of our social media attempt to get people excited about joining this conservation effort and, and watching your little piece of it light up so we can see conservation happening across the country. That's the goal. And it is a very cool, cool thing, I have to say. So now this project is about changing people's minds, which is an incredibly difficult and challenging task. You've talked about changing the culture and how we think about nature. How do you approach that? I have a number of talks that I have honed over the years. When you give people something to do that will make a positive change, uh, they are far more likely to embrace that idea rather than reject it. People want to be part of the success. They don't want to be part of the problem. Most people, anyway. Part of it is that I'm asking for people to make up their own mind and move forward rather than trying to do top-down legislation say, you have to do this. It truly is a grassroots effort. But you're right, changing people's minds is a tough one. And it, it varies as you move around the country. But I can say that we are making a lot of progress. I have been talking about this for 20 years now. I get three or four talk requests every single day. And that means there's a lot of people interested wow. in this. They want, it, they want to join in and, and be part of the solution. So that's encouraging to me. Right. It, it seems to be growing exactly the way we wanted it to, which is good because we can't have a slow build here. I mean, things are disappearing. If, if, if we're going to lose a million species in 20 years and we take 30 years to do this, it's not going to work. They'll all be gone. We've got to do it very quickly. So a fast build is, is part of the model. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, here with Doug Tallamy, a professor at the University of Delaware, an author and speaker. Give our listeners their to-do list in terms of becoming contributors to the Homegrown National Park or just to become more ecologically aware and to act on that awareness. That is the to-do list. Become Become aware of the life around you. Look around, drive around, and look at the landscapes that you live in and decide how much life are they supporting. Now, a lot of people say, well, I don't know what plants will do this very well, but there are helpful websites these days 
the National Wildlife Federation has a, a, a tool called Native Plant Finder, where if you put in your zip code, plants will pop up for your county. So right away, you have a target list. These are plants that I should try to get on my property. We've got to spread this message. So if you reach an understanding and, and go to our website, homegrownnationalpark.org, a lot of information on there. You can reach that understanding of which direction we need to go and then encourage somebody who doesn't have a clue to do that. One of your neighbors, you know, I hate, I hate neighbors proselytizing to other neighbors and saying, well, I'm living right and you're not. <laughs> so you have to be careful about that. But helping to spread the message is, is really, that's the biggest thing we need. That's what's going to change the culture is spreading the word. When, when somebody starts to convert their yard to natives, you can do it without anybody knowing that you've changed anything other than you're going to have more plants. You're going to have less lawn. It is not acres of lawn. It's plantings everywhere with lawn guiding you through those plantings. That's, that's mm -hmm. the look we're, we're talking about here. There's more plants, less lawn, more productive plants, and we will be successful. The homegrown national park was an idea of Doug Tallamy but he makes clear that it really came into being with the help of Michelle Alfandari, whose expertise in business development and marketing put it on the map. It's a map you can see at the website at homegrownnationalpark.org. Check it out and become part of this nationwide effort to plant whatever is native in your part of the world and to restore biodiversity so that native insects and other animals can live and thrive. Reducing lawn area is a major part of this effort, as lawns are dead zones as far as nature is concerned. They also require large inputs of precious water and are neighborhood toxic waste dumps of poisonous pesticides and herbicides. Less lawn means less time mowing, more time to relax, and less mower noise and pollution as well. Thanks so much for listening and tell everyone you know about Mothering Earth. Listen and subscribe on any podcast player. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth. Mothering Earth.